It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Thursday, July 9th, 2009. Apparently heresy season is running late this year. You gotta tell you, you know, <laughs> tracking down the stuff I've been working on, it, it's a lot of work. I'm, I'm tired. I'm, you know, maybe it's just I'm old. Just, just stop complaining. I love what I do. <sighs> settling in. Settling in. Thank you for tuning in. You are listening to Fighting for the Faith, the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which is to get you to think biblically, to get you to think critically, and to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. This is not a politically correct program. If you think that love means never offending anybody, and if you think that love means that you say things in such a way that no one's feelings get hurt, you you and I are not going to get along. Uh, because uh, I believe that biblical love is tough love. It's the kind of love that's willing to say things like, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee the powers of hell? What the coming destruction, or woe to you Pharisees. You know, um, love does that. And love speaks the truth. And to a world, uh, to a church, uh, not even the world, forget the world for a second, the, the church, the large segments of the church have just stopped listening to God's word. And uh, sometimes when that happens, uh, it, you know, the loving thing to do is to take out a spiritual two by four and uh, hit somebody upside the head. Now, I don't mean with a physical two by four, that would actually harm somebody irreparably. Uh, but a spiritual two-by-four is, is at times necessary. That's it, that's right. Because what is the message that the church has been given to go out and proclaim? Well, it's recorded for us. Uh, it read letters, if you would, for those of you liberals out there tuning in. Uh, read letters in um, Luke chapter 24 to go and proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. The message of the gospel is not go out and make the world a better place or work together with everybody for the common good or, as you're going to hear, um, Bishop, in quotation marks, Bishop Catherine Jeffords Shorey, uh, shortly, uh, it is not finding out God's dream for the world and, and going and helping to bring that about, you know, cooperating with God to bring his dream for the planet into existence, whatever that means. So I, I got to I gotta warn you, this program could cause you to become supremely dissatisfied with your church, especially if you're attending one of those seeker-sensitive, purpose-driven type churches, or if uh, you are a, a member of the current existing Episcopal Church USA, because I've got news for you, that the Episcopal Church USA, under the leadership of Catherine Jefford Shorey, who we'll get to shortly, is against biblical Christianity. Not that she's, you know, kind of, you know, oblivious to it. Maybe it maybe has a slightly different interpretation of what that means. No, Catherine Jefford Shorey has gone the way, and I, I this is going to be blunt, has gone the way of Jezebel and is now openly attacking 
the Orthodox Christian faith, and I'm not referring to the guys over there in the East, you know, the 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 the, the Greek Orthodox or the Russian Orthodox. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about Orthodox Christianity, the correct Christian faith that believes in sound biblical doctrine, believes in the inerrant Word of God, believes that we can trust what is written in Scripture and it can be taken literally where it's meant to be taken literally, poetically, where it's meant to be taken poetically, and it is still inerrant and true and binding upon the church. Anyway, so let's talk about what's lined up for today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. We're going to lead off with... uh, A quick email or comment left for me on Facebook Facebook by a, a listener. Uh, we're going to then dive into audio from yesterday's uh, uh, annual convention, the meeting of, well, I don't know if it's annual, but it's the meeting of the Episcopal uh, Church USA and Catherine Jefford Shorey's opening attack. Oh, actually, they, these were her opening comments to kick off the beginning of this uh uh, this convention there in Anaheim, California, and she has the audacity to call Orthodox Christianity a heresy. I kid you not, you're going to hear it for yourself, and boy, have we got problems. Uh, that will then lead us into a discussion, or at least I will unve- uh, basically walk through the passages of Scripture with you that make it absolutely certainly clear that women are not to have positions of authority within the church. Now, some of you have asked for that. I've talked about it in the past. I've even given the passages in the past, but we're going to walk through that. And then we're going to uh, ask the question, what's going on with the Massachusetts Bible Society? And then rather than listening to a bad sermon today, I'm going to play part three of my lecture uh, series that I gave on how to properly interpret the Bible. Now, along with that, I'm going to also post the notes and the PowerPoint presentation uh, so that you can see them uh, for yourself uh, for this uh, this series of presentations, you know, so that you can refer back to them. Why? Because a lot of people uh, need this information so that they're not deceived. The Bible means what the Bible means. It has a singular meaning for each passage. It does not have multiple meanings. Uh, we do not need to be tolerant of people who are contradicting uh, God's word, it, where it clearly where it clearly teaches what it teaches. And because there's no such thing as multiple truths. A equals A, the logical law of non-contradiction. We operate this way in our normal lives anyway. For instance, when you're driving down the street and you're in your car and you're, say, you're heading to the grocery store or maybe you're on your way to work, okay, and you see up ahead in the distance a traffic light. Right? And the light is green. So you realize that, you know, it's a far away, a far enough away that um, if you don't get there quick enough, it's going to turn yellow and it's going to turn red. And when it changes colors, the intersection is no longer yours, it belongs to somebody else. Now, nobody that I am aware of sits down and says, you know what, philosophically, what is green anyway? You know, uh, your your idea of green may be different than my idea of green. And what we really need to do is embrace uh, multiple definitions of greenness. And therefore, that means that uh, 
when the light turns what somebody what some may consider to be red uh, it, in my definition it may actually be green and so therefore i have the right philosophically because there's no such thing as absolute truth to then blow through a red light and uh, just ignore what other people consider to be green i mean after all i mean Listen, this isn't it just stifling that we have such a limited definition of the of of the concept of green anyway that every single time the light turns green people go and every time the light turns red people stop. I mean, this is just a stifling and just uh a repressive tradition that we have here. And, you know, what we really need is to have some creative thinking regarding redness and greenness so that we don't have to be bound by the tradition of stopping on a red and going on a green. It, boring. Absolutely boring. It's not even relevant, you know. So you, you get where I'm going with this? In the real world, we don't operate this way. But somehow people think that when it comes to the truth of what the scriptures teach, that somehow red can be green and green can be red, up can be down and uh, down can be up, black can be white and white can be black, and good can be evil and evil can be good. It's just absolutely a, a terrible example of twisting God's word to your own destruction. We don't operate this way in the real world. Why is it that people operate this way when it comes to the Bible? So we'll be talking about that today. Lots to to go through. And so uh, what I would recommend doing is making yourself comfortable, if, if that's your if that's your thing. You know, make yourself comfortable. Fuzzy bunny slippers, they're out. Uh, Birkenstock sandals, okay. Um, it's summertime. We're supposed to, you know, fuzzy bunny slippers may cause hot feet. And it's, just, it's just not comfortable. Hot, stinky, sweaty feet while listening to Fighting for the Faith may actually detract from the um, from the experience. I mean, this is all about uh, a, a radio experience. And maybe I've listened too much to these seeker-driven guys. Anyway, make yourself comfortable. And if you'd like to exercise, feel free. Uh, we understand that some of you are into staying healthy or losing weight, and uh, well, this is a fine way to do it, uh, guaranteed to be informative and fun all along the way. All right, we're going to dive into our show proper here. Okay, first off, um, let me pull up my Facebook page here. Uh, somebody, Stephen Morris, left me a fine comment on Facebook regarding Stephen Furtick's um, lecture, sermon, whatever it was. And uh, if you remember, Stephen Furtick in the lecture that we played yesterday made the claim that uh, we shouldn't try to mimic other people's miracles. Now, Stephen, Steve Morris pointed out the obvious problem with his statement. Uh, Morris writes, he says, I nearly fell out of my chair when Stephen Furtick made the claim that we shouldn't mimic other people's miracles. I'm thinking, um, isn't that exactly what you're trying to get us to do by praying big, fat, crazy, sun stand still prayers? Sigh. <laughs> Steve, don't get logical on us. I mean, this you know what this really sounds like to me. It, it's obvious to me that you that you have been affected by um, you know by uh, modern framing stories, and that you believe in, in that truth is true. And and you see, you're just being narrow minded. Um, actually, it was a brilliant comment, so that's why I read it. <laughs> all right, all right. Fasten your seatbelts, folks. Um, I'm going to lead off with this. 
today. Yeah, you know, I, I may be doing this wrong. There, there may be some radio producer out there gnashing his teeth saying, no, no, build up to this, Roseboro. Build up to it. No, I want to get this one out of the way. I want to lead off with this after that, email, after that comment. Catherine Jeffert Shorey. Uh, we're going to play about – let me check the, uh, the, the MP3 player here. We're going to play about uh, 11 minutes. Not, now, her total lecture was about 15 minutes long. However, the, um, the first four minutes were kind of inside the Episcopal Church shop talk kind of stuff. There's still some of that in what I'm about to play for you, and the audio quality is not all that good. Uh, but stay tuned because the uh, the fireworks start at the two minute and six second mark here in what she's saying. But she kicks off uh, yesterday's um, you know Episcopal uh, I don't know what you want to call this thing uh, conference in uh, Anaheim, California yesterday, basically by saying that you know that the, that the Episcopal Church is in crisis. And uh, let me pull up the Christian Post story on this because I thought that they actually did a uh, Christian Post. There we go. Here we go. I'm, I'm going to pull this up on the Christian Post because I thought they did a decent job. Uh, Episcopal. There we go. It, they did a decent job of covering what it is that she um, let off with yesterday. And so uh, here we go. The headline for this one. You know, I should do it this way. Hang on. We have a tradition here at Fighting for the Faith. There we go. Headline for the Christian Post story reads, U.S. Episcopal head, that would be uh, Bishop Catherine Jefford Shorey, heads, head opens triennial convention with crisis talk. And let me read. This is by Eric Young of the Christian Post. He, uh, he writes, in her first opening address to the General Convention of the Episcopal Church, the most reverend Catherine... Hang on a second here. <coughs> I'm hacking up a hairball. <coughs> By the way, Jesus had zero uh, female uh, apostles. Um, the Most Reverend Catherine Jeffert Shorey made it very clear that the denomination she presides over is in the middle of a crisis, one that has several parts. Now, what's the crisis there in the Episcopal Church? Well, about 700 congregations uh, have left the Episcopal Church and um, started their own Anglican you know, thing going on here in America. And uh, why did they leave? Because, well, she's not preaching the Orthodox Christian faith. She's teaching a different gospel. We'll prove that here shortly. Um, let me read just a little bit more of this to kind of give you a highlight of what to listen for. Quote, this is Je Catherine Jefferts Shorey speaking, The overarching connection in all these uh, crises has to do with the great Western heresy, uh, that we can be saved as individuals, and that any of us alone can be in right relationship with God. That's what you have to look forward to. Yes, that's right. Catherine, Catherine Jefford Shorey, you're going to hear her say it in her own words because it's oh so much more powerful when you hear her say it. That the overarching connection in all of these crises has to do with the great Western heresy. Yeah, there's a big heresy here in the West. And what is that heresy? Uh, that we can be saved as individuals, uh, that any of us alone can be in, in right relationship with God. Yeah, individual salvation, according to Catherine Jefford Shorey, is a heresy. That's what you have to look forward to. So really, I um, 
if you have one of those things that you put in your mouth to protect your teeth while grinding, you know, at, there's people who have problems that, you know, at night they grind their teeth. And so they have these uh, things they put in their mouth to protect themselves so that they, you know, they don't end up grinding their teeth at night. If you have one of those, you might want to put one in because uh, you will be grinding your teeth when you hear what she says. If not, um, you, you go borrow one from a neighbor. You know, just stick it in a thing of Listerine. It'll clean it right up. Don't worry about the germs. Here's Catherine Jefford Shorey. This crisis is an opportunity to refocus on what is most essential. When we've done that, we will go on our way rejoicing. The decision-making we face here is an opportunity to choose the direction of our journey into God's mission. Will we turn our faces toward Jerusalem? Or will we wander back out into the desert? Uh, pause there for a second here. She's talking about the overarching crisis. And notice the light, light, nice biblical illustration there. Will we turn our faces towards Jerusalem? Um, as if she's Jesus Christ or the um, Episcopal Church. is. Jesus. What will they turn their face? What does that mean? Uh, I understand what it means when Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem. That means he was ready to go there and die for the sins of the world, be punished in our place on the cross, you know, propitiate God's wrath, atone for our sins. So when it says talks about Jesus setting his face towards Jerusalem, that's what it's referring to, him going to his death and his resurrection. Okay, we continue. How we will engage God's reconciling mission in sharing the good news, healing the world. Healing the world? Huh? Wait a second. Backing it up here, this is weird. How we will engage God's reconciling mission. God's rec- How will we engage God's reconciling mission? You know who this sounds like? She sounds just like Rob Bell and Brian McLaren. God's reconciling mission. How will we engage God's reconciling? Well, this is real simple. We go and proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. Announcing that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, you know, when he was being crucified on the cross. She'll get to that, by the way. By the, This is probably going to take a long time. I apologize. I have to interrupt. How we will engage God's reconciling mission in sharing the good news healing the world, and caring for all of God's creation. What does it mean that we're going to heal the world? Sounds like one of those Michael Jackson things. How will we discover anew that we are in relationship with all that God has created, and that we are meant to be stewards of the whole? Lane... Collectivist talk here, by the way. Denson reminded us recently that stewards are wardens of the stocks, keepers of the pig pens. We're beginning to notice that our global garden increasingly resembles an odorous sty. But it's not the pigs who are the problem. Pigs are neat and tidy if they have enough space. The problem is with their keepers, who see pigs only as bacon and ham-producing machines, 
rather than part of God's good creation, and therefore deserving of appropriate respect. Um, what is the appropriate respect that we're supposed to show for a pig? I'm I'm kind of at a loss to figure out what that is. Again, and I do read my Bible regularly. The appropriate respect for a pig. Hmm. The crisis at this moment has several parts. And like Episcopalians, particularly the ones in Mississippi, they're all related. The overarching connection in all of these crises has to do with the great Western heresy. All right, here it is. <clears throat> the overarching, how did she put it here? The overarching connection in all of these crises has to do with the great Western heresy. This is Catherine Jeffords Shorey now, bishop of the Episcopal Church USA, claiming that there's a great Western heresy. What is that heresy? Here we go. That we can be saved as individuals. The great Western heresy is that we can be saved as individuals. We continue. That any of us alone can be in right relationship with God. That any of us alone can be in right relationship with God. You know, I'm going to stop there for a second. And the reason I'm going to interrupt her, at least a little bit of her context, is I want to deal with that, it, it, basically, that, those thoughts by themselves. Because she gives what I consider to be a non-secator uh, example of this. Although it's not exactly that. But, um, she, well, I'll, let me play her comment here. Okay, now notice, it's one thing to say that the church needs to prophetically speak against the sinfulness that's inherently involved in rugged individualism and not understanding that uh, we are all connected and that your actions affect other people, okay? Uh, in Christianity, we confess in one of our creeds the communion of the saints, okay? It is true that there is Christian community, and that community literally centers in on, obsesses with the apostolic preaching. It obsesses on and focuses in on fellowship and the breaking of bread and the prayers, okay? So there is truly a communion of the saints. It's not a communion with the world, but a communion with the saints, a communion of the saints, who are the saints? They are the ones who have been raised from the dead, given faith. I mean, spiritually, raised from the dead spiritually, given faith. Their heart of stone has been replaced with a heart of flesh. They trust in Christ alone for their salvation. Those are who the saints are. It's not just a community of communities or a community with the world. We are the world. We are the children. None of that. No. We are, Christians believe in the communion of the saints. So it's one thing to preach against the excesses and sinfulness of rugged individualism, but that's not what she said. Let me back it up again and let you hear what the great Western heresy is again. That we can be saved as individuals. That we can be saved as individuals. That any of us alone can be in right relationship with God. So there it is. 
that we can be saved as individuals or any of us alone can be in right relationship with God. That, my friends, is her claim is the great heresy. And by making that claim, actually, she is the one who has become the great heretic. Okay? Catherine Jeffert Shorey is no longer, if she ever was, um, uh, basic, she is no longer an under-shepherd of Jesus Christ. She has become an agent of the devil. I know that's strong language. I understand that. This woman is not is not an agent or representative of the Jesus Christ of scriptures. She is she has become an agent of Satan and the devil. That means the Episcopal Church USA literally is under the direction and control of a woman who is an agent of the devil. I know that's strong. But that woman is not only wrong, she is actually now hostile against Orthodox Christianity. Let me prove this to you. We are all very familiar with John chapter 3, verse 16. Well, there's a little bit more to the verse itself, but let me let me read a couple of these verses, and then we're going to apply a portion of the historical grammatical method. Keep in mind, the Holy Spirit inspired the words themselves. Okay? Not just the concepts. He inspired the very words that were written to be written. And these are red letters, by the way, for those of you liberals listening. We read, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Now remember, Catherine Jefford Shorey says that the great Western heresy, the great uh, Western heresy is that we can be saved as individuals, that any of us alone can be in right relationship with God. Okay, now let's just do a little bit of grammar. Let me let me read a little bit more. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Now, I'm going to focus in on the whoever of uh, verse 16 and the whoever of verse 18. Now, this is important stuff. Historical, grammatical, this is real simple. Christ, God the Holy Spirit, inspired these very words to be written for us, okay? Now, she says we it's a heresy to believe that we can be saved as individuals or that any individual can be in right relationship with God. Now, either what she's saying is true or it's false. If what she's saying is true, uh, then we will not find things like I'm going to point out here, okay? All right, a little bit of Greek work here. I apologize for those of you who do not know Greek. It's okay. I will be nice to you, okay? The whosoever, okay, that we get to in uh, verse 16, it's basically, it's a, it's a verb that's, uh, that's uh, the participial form, if you would, in the Greek. Now, in the Greek, the verb is pistuo, okay? Basically meaning to believe or to trust, Okay. And uh, when it takes on a participial form, okay, it takes on some attributes of, a, of basically of a noun, if you would. 
So it's kind of like a verbal noun. Maybe that's that, that I'm I'm trying to simplify this here. So it's got parts of it that are that you would expect to see as as the verb and parts of it that also make it similar to a noun. Okay, now that being the case, uh, the participle here of pistuo, the Greek uh, pistuo, pistuon is what it says in the Greek, and it's the present active participle masculine singular nominative. Masculine singular nominative. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever, singular, whoever believes the singular believing one in him should not perish but have eternal life. In case you missed it and disagree with it, that exact same participial form is again shows up in John chapter 3 verse 18. Whoever the believing one is in him, again, masculine singular nominative present active participle. Salvation literally according to scripture, according to Jesus Christ, and this is just the tip of the iceberg, is an individual thing. Okay? Let me give you another passage in case you're not convinced. And I understand, you know, working with the Greek. Um, Paul, speaking of himself, not of a community of believers, but speaking of himself, he says, he writing to the Philippians in Philippians chapter 3, he says, look out for those dogs, look out for those evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh, for we are the cir- circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ and put no confidence in the flesh. Talking to the believers, he says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as a loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I counted everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ." and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and I may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead." Notice all the I talk there. Well, you're going to hear Catherine Jefford Shorey when we come back from this break, literally attacking I talk. And yet the Apostle Paul had no problem talking about his personal right relationship with God that was based on not on a righteousness of his own, but on a righteousness that was given to him by faith. That is the righteousness of Christ. And there was a a whole lot of eye talk going on there in Philippians chapter 3. Keep that in mind, because when we get back from the break, you're going to hear Catherine Jefford Shorey talking about Ubuntu, 
not the uh, the Linux operating system, but somehow making some kind of a point that Ubuntu is is really what the Christian faith is all about and getting rid of this I stuff. Yeah, believe it or not, that's what she's going to do. So stay tuned. we got lots of ground to cover. If you'd like to email me, you can. Please do. Talk back at fightingforthefaith.com or ask to be my friend on Facebook or follow me on Twitter. My name on Twitter is Pirate Christian. Wow. We'll be right back. If you think God is a black woman named Papa, then you need to get out of the shack and read your Bible. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. It's... Marty Python's Flying Circus Church. Welcome to the first emergent bank of postmodernism. How can I be of service to you today, ma'am? Ever since you people changed your name to the first emergent bank of postmodernism, I haven't been able to figure out what the correct balance is in my account. Every time I log into your website, I can't even figure out very basic information like what checks have cleared or whether my deposits have been credited to my account. It's like everything is shrouded in a mysterious haze. Oh, I see. So you're here because you'd like to have a conversation about this. No. I'd just like to know the current balance of my checking account, please, because my rent is due tomorrow. Well, let me pull that information up for you. Ah, yes. I see. That is very intriguing. What's intriguing? Is there something wrong? Am I overdrawn? What is my balance, please? Well, ma'am, it appears that your balance may or may not be what you think it should be. What's that supposed to mean? Just look on the computer screen and tell me the number where it says account balance. Well, ma'am, I would never be so arrogant as to presume that I could actually know with any degree of certainty what the balance of your account is. What, What does arrogance have to do with telling me my bank account balance? Just read me the number. Well, you see, that's just it. Uh, a specific number is so final, so narrow, so limiting. This idea that your bank balance is merely a fixed and limited numerical truth is just an artifact from the modern society. Well, we've moved on beyond modernism, and we're now experiencing the liberation and the freedom of postmodern ways of interpreting the truth. Are you out of your mind? Well, don't you see? It's not the number that is so important. That is merely a cold and detached way of understanding truth. To say that any of us can know what truth is is nothing more than pure arrogance on our part. Who are 
we to say that we can know truth? We feel it's more important to humbly approach the question of account balances by having community conversations about whether or not you earn the money in your bank account in a way that doesn't support the theocapitalist suicide machine. It's more important to ask you to think about what is the best use of this money in your account rather than just give you a fixed figure. This conversation is pointless. Look, right here, according to my calculations, I should have $2,356 in my checking account. Well, is it in there or not? You may or may not be correct in your assertion. Um, some people who are sensitive to these sorts of limiting ideas may or may not agree with your calculations, while others who may or may not be smarter than me may believe that your calculations regarding your bank balance are overly influenced by a male-dominated Western culture. That's it. I'm closing my account. You give me my $2,356 right now! That was a disgusting display of pride and arrogance. <laughs> Keep that up and I will have to call the manager and have you thrown out of here. Great idea. You call your manager because I want to close my account right now. Well, <clears throat> I would call my manager, but I'm not certain that she's even here. Orthodox Christianity clearly teaches God's law, which condemns our sinful nature, and clearly proclaims the gospel of Christ's death and resurrection on our behalf to pay for our sinfulness. These truths of Holy Scripture are timeless and objective. However, a creeping fog known as the emergent church threatens to unravel these clear teachings by redefining the vocabulary and core beliefs of the Christian faith in terms of subjective personal feelings and experiences. That is why Pirate Christian Radio is proud to offer The Emergent Church, Undefining Christianity, a book by Bob DeWay that is widely regarded as the best book available on the emergent heresy. The book is $12.95 plus $4 shipping and handling, and all proceeds directly support the Christ-centered ministry of Pirate Christian Radio. Log on today to piratechristianradio.com and order your copy of The Emergent Church, Undefining Christianity. Listening to Fighting for the Faith. A whole lot of reason to fight nowadays. Yes, sirree, Bob. It's a full time job. All right, need to remind you Fighting for the Faith is listener supported radio. That means that uh, your financial support is vital, critical, necessary. Um, not optional in order for us to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. You can support us a couple of ways. You can visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com, home of the archives, by the way. Um, and you can click on one of our friendly yellow donate buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. So <clears throat> let me back this up and again. Here's the Great Western Heresy, according to Catherine 
Jeffrey Shorey, the Bishop of the Episcopal Church USA. In other words, she's just declared war on Orthodox Christianity and what the Bible says. That we can be saved as individuals. That any of us alone can be in right relationship with God. <sighs> just sends chills down my spine. Now, what you're going to hear next is an attack against decision theology. By the way, decision theology is not synonymous with individual uh, salvation. You got to keep that in mind. So when you hear her now knocking decision theology, which deserves to be knocked, by the way, um, you need to keep in mind that decision theology is not synonymous nor equal to the concept that you are individually saved or made have a right individual standing before God on account of what Christ did. That's the sneaky little thing going on here. And uh, those in the Episcopal Church who just listen to this woman and not think critically, keep that in mind. It's caricatured in some quarters by insisting that salvation depends on reciting a specific verbal formula about Jesus. The individualist focus, that individualist focus, is a form of idolatry. Now, funny enough, in some small way, I understand where she's coming from, and she's making a valid point. She's knocking decision theology. You, you don't become... Uh, you are not born again because you made a decision to become a Christ follower. However, that is not the same. It is not the same as saying that you are individually saved by Christ or that you can, as an individual, have a right standing with Christ. That comes about as a result of faith, and faith is a gift given to us by God through the means of grace, namely through the preaching and proclamation of repentance and the forgiveness of sins and the and the announcement of the good news that Christ has died for our sins and that we are now made right before God as a result of what Christ has done that's not decisional theology that has that is literally the 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 proclamation of the gospel is what regenerates us God uses it to regenerate us but again she's attacking individual salvation for it puts me and my words in the place that only God can occupy, at the center of existence as the ground of all being. That heresy is one reason for the theme of this convention, Ubuntu. Okay, so she's attacking the heresy that you can be saved as an individual, and the theme of the convention is... Ubuntu. Keep in mind, I just read Paul talking about how he was saved, how he didn't have a righteousness of his own, and that he was in Christ. He had a right standing before God because of Christ. <clears throat> All that I talk that we read in Philippians chapter 3. Now compare this to the theme of the Episcopal Church Conference going on right now. The theme is Ubuntu. By the way, uh, that was the theme of the... Uh, well, the similar thing was talked about at the uh, Ahabwara conference, oh, forget it, and in South Africa, the, the emergent conference that just convened there. That word does not have any eyes in it. The eye only emerges as we connect. And that's really... Uh, by the way, is the word Ubuntu found in the scriptures, uh, Catherine? No, it's not. ...what the word means. Uh, so, I, never mind. I am because we are, 
and I can only become a whole person in relationship with others. There is no I without you. And in our context, you and I are known only as we reflect the image of the one who created us. What? Let me read that, hear that again. Hang on a second here. In our context, you and I are known only as we reflect the image of the one who created us. Where is that in the Bible? Just, you know, this, anybody, everybody just seems to be making stuff up about God and what Christianity teaches. Where is that in the Bible, Catherine? Some of you will hear a resonance with Martin Buber's I and Thou and recognize a harmony. You will not be wrong. I said that this crisis has several elements related to that heretical and individualistic understanding. Here we go again. She's called it heretical. Heretical. It is heretical if you believe that you as an individual are saved. We've touched on one, how we keep the earth meant to be a gift to all God's creatures. The financial condition of the nations right now is another element. The sins of a few have wreaked havoc with the lives of many, as greed and dishonesty have destroyed livelihoods, educational possibilities, care for the aged, and multiple forms of creativity. And that's just the aftermath of Ponzi schemes for which a handful will go to jail. If we want to be faithful, we need to be continually rediscovering that my needs are not the only significant ones. Living in Ubuntu implies that selfishness and self-centeredness cannot long survive. We are our siblings' keepers and their knowers, and we cannot be known without them. We have no meaning. We have no true existence in isolation. And we shall indeed die as we forget or ignore that reality. Notice what she's doing here. She's exalting community above individual to the point where the concept of an individual doesn't even exist anymore as a valid category. Especially that heresy of individual salvation. By the way, I want to read something to you from the Solid Declaration of the Formula of Concord, um, uh, 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 52, uh, 54, and 56. Uh, This has to do with how people are saved. I want you to listen to this. Uh, This is from the Confessions of the Lutheran Faith, the Lutheran Church, which, by the way, I consider this to be Christian. Uh, We read, um, The preaching and hearing of God's Word are the Holy Spirit's instruments. By, with, and through these instruments, the Spirit desires to work effectively to convert people to God and to work in them both to will and to do. Philippians chapter 2, verse 13. God works through this means, i.e. the preaching and hearing of his word. He breaks our hearts, as Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 4, 3 through 4, and draws us to him, John 644 through the preaching of the law a person comes to know his sins 
and God's wrath, he experiences in his heart true terrors, contrition, and sorrow through the preaching of and reflection on the Holy Gospel about the gracious forgiveness of sins in Christ. A spark of faith is kindled in him. This faith accepts the forgiveness of sins for Christ's sake and comforts itself with the gospel promise. So the Holy Spirit, who does all this, is sent into the heart. Galatians chapter 4, verse 6. No conversion would follow this preaching and hearing if the power and effectiveness of the Holy Spirit were not added. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 6 and 7. The Spirit enlightens and converts hearts through the word preached and heard, so people believe this word and agree with it. The preacher and the hearer should be certain that when God's word is preached purely and truly according to God's command and will, and people listen attentively and seriously and meditate on it, God is certainly present with his grace. He grants and has been uh, set at uh, he, uh, he grants as has been said what otherwise a person can neither accept nor give by his own powers. For we should not and cannot always judge from feeling about the presence, the work, and the gifts of the Holy Spirit as to how and when they are experienced in the heart. They are often covered and happen in great weakness. Therefore, we should be certain about and agree with the promise that God's word preached and heard is truly an office and work of the Holy Spirit. He is certainly effective and works in our hearts by them. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14 through 17, chapter 3, verses 5 through 6. Okay, so just keeping in mind here, uh, her slap against the decision theology people was an interesting sleight of hand, but their error does not mean that you are not individually saved and that that's a heresy to believe that you are saved as an individual and have individual right standing before God because of Christ. We continue on her little Ubuntu talk here. There's another related element to this crisis, the one that has to do with the particular means and purpose of our gathering. How do we keep the main thing the main thing? How will we insist that this domestic and foreign missionary society remember that God's mission is our reason for existence and that it has most to do with loving our neighbors? Law. God's mission has most to do with their whatever and it has, it, it has to do with loving your neighbors? That's the law. Now, understand, Christians, Christians are the only ones who truly can keep the law. The only ones who can. We're saved unto good works, but we are saved by faith. The structures of this church are resources for God's mission, but they are not God's mission in themselves. And if we get that mixed up, we will have turned our face toward the date palms of Jericho rather than Jerusalem. The temptation for us here will be to see one small part of God's mission, the part that each one of us holds most dear as the overarching reason for this church's existence. 
The reality is that God's mission will continue whatever we do here, but it may not advance as effectively or penetrate as widely in the next few years if we get selfish or miss the mark. There are aspects of mission that are more appropriate and effective at the congregational and diocesan level. This church as a whole shouldn't, for example, be running Camp East of Eden for kids from all over the church, but it could provide some liaison and some connecting gifts and share some best practices for camping ministry. Much of that work is already being done by the Episcopal Camps and Conference Centers, and the job of the whole church in that regard is mostly about making connections. I have no idea what any of this means, some kind of jargon that she's throwing out there. Some of the ecumenists in here will twitch at this word, but we should be in the business of subsidiarity. What is subsidiarity? The church as a whole should not be doing mission work that can be done better at a more local level. The budget and the resolutions we will debate here should be about those things that affect the whole of this church and the vision of a renewed creation for all of God's handiwork. We should leave smaller things and more local issues to more local parts of the church. We might also consider putting in that category the big picture issues we can't yet agree on. Uh, such as uh, the homosexual issue? The ones for which we have many more local and varied understandings, recognizing that different contexts may require different responses. Jesus' critical decision to journey toward Jerusalem is about the city of God's dream. All right, listen carefully to this next section. I have no idea what this woman's talking about. It's very different. Um, man, I tell you, you, listen close, listen close. Yerushalayim, the city of peace, the city of shalom, the city of God's holy mountain toward which the nations stream. We Christians often think that the only important part of the Jerusalem story is Calvary. We Christians uh, only think that the important part of the Jerusalem story is Calvary? What are you talking about, lady? The Jerusalem story? The gospel good news is all about Calvary, and it has nothing to do with the, quote, Jerusalem story. What's this Jerusalem story that you're trying to smuggle in here? And yes, suffering and killing in that place still seem to be the loudest news. Yeah, you know, the suffering and death of Christ in our place. But Calvary was a waypoint in the larger arc of God's dream. Really, where does it say that in God's word? Where does it say that in the scriptures? I think you just completely made that up, Jez. I mean, Catherine. It's on the way to Jerusalem. Oh, Calvary's on the way to Jerusalem. 
what a novel interpretation you've come up with. You get extra bonus points for creativity. The problem is, is that the Bible doesn't call us to creativity. It calls us to fidelity. And this story that you're telling is not faithful to God's word. It's not in Jerusalem. Oh, Calvary's not in Jerusalem. You see, because it's right outside the city gates. So it's just a waypoint to Jerusalem. Oh, boy. Jesus' passion was and is for God's dream of a reconciled creation. It's for God's dream of a reconciled creation. Hang on a second here. Let me see something. i got to pull up my computerized Bible let me reconcile. I'm going to pull this is in the Corinthians passage, and I want to limit it to. Hang on a second. I got to limit this to the New Testament. Uh, okay, let's see. For while we were enemies, this is at Romans chapter 5. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved through his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Uh, Okay, reconciliation here in Romans 5 is not talking about the creation. It's talking about um, human beings, individuals, if you would. Um, Let's see here. Um, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 18, 19, and 20. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us, that's humans, to himself and gave us, that's uh, Christians, the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world, the cosmos, to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Well, the message of reconciliation is that Christ... that. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting our trespasses against us. Therefore, we are ambassadors of Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Hmm. She's Notice she's changed the definition of reconciliation to... You see, it's no longer individual salvation, because that's a heresy. Um, the reconciliation is the reconciliation of the creation... Hmm. Did Jesus die for the sins of dogs and cats and little tiny chipmunks and squirrels and woodland creatures and and ferns and pine trees and redwoods and We're meant to be partners in building that reality throughout all of creation. We're meant to be partners in that reality. Notice she's completely changed the gospel. Backing up the tape here for clarification's sake, she's preaching a different, completely different gospel. It's on the way to Jerusalem. It's not in Jerusalem. Jesus' passion was and is for God's dream of a reconciled creation. So Jesus' passion is for God's dream. Hang on a second here. Doing a little biblical search here. Words. Hang on. Um, God. God's dream. Let me expand the search out so we can look across multiple uh, translation. God's dream. 
Nope, doesn't appear anywhere in Scripture. Hmm. This is suspect at the very least. We're meant to be partners in building that reality throughout all of creation. This crisis is a decision point, one which may involve suffering, but it is our opportunity to choose which direction we'll go and what we will build. We will fail if we choose business as usual. That would be the liberal business as usual. You should abandon your liberal agenda and go with the folks who... uh, who understand that you were preaching a different gospel and, and left the Episcopal Church and were calling you back to Christ and Him crucified in the authority of Scripture. There will be cross-shaped decisions in our work. Cross-shaped decisions? There's a statement that makes absolutely no sense. Really, what shape are your decisions? Well, I've got, I've got star-shaped decisions. I've got circles. I've got square shapes uh, decisions. How about you? Well, I've got some that are cross shaped. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great. And I like using multiple polygons and octagon shaped decisions too. Really, boy, your 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 decisions are really creatively shaped. <laughs> I know, isn't that great? But if we look faithfully, there will be resurrection as well. Oh, give me a break! Notice she just allegorized Christ's cross and the resurrection. Will the words we use in the coming days reflect the word of God incarnate in our midst? What does that mean? Will the, the, the word, will they reflect the word of God incarnate in our midst? Well, you've abandoned the word of God, the, the written word of God. Will our words imitate God's effective word? Speaking shalom to creation. Speaking shalom to creation. Where are we told as a church to go and speak shalom to creation? Anyone anywhere want to chime in on that one? Can you provide a Bible verse or two? Maybe a word, red letter from Jesus on that? That's our decision, individually and collectively. That's our opportunity. <laughs> Notice the hypocrisy. That's our decision, individually and collectively. She just blasted individually. Never mind. To live Ubuntu. This is our moment of judgment, our crisis. We can make our decisions in hope. We can speak the love of God through this church to the world. And we can do it together. You know, whatever happened to the simple thing that Jesus told us to do? Luke chapter 24. Just, you know, just, you know, me being a Bible guy. <clears throat> Jesus says, um, let's see, we started Luke 24, 44. And then Jesus said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and the forgiveness of sins be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. Nothing there about uh, participating in God's dream for the reconciliation of the creation. What she just said was complete gobbledygook, hogwash, and a different gospel. And let me remind you all... That scripture is very clear. 
about those who preach a different gospel, who don't preach Orthodox Christianity. In fact, in her case, she's attacking it. We read the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit, he writes to the Galatian church, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in, in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another, but that there are some who are troubling you and want to distort the gospel of Jesus Christ. But even if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one that we preach to you, let him be accursed, eternally condemned, as we have said before. So now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be damned. In this particular case, her. Catherine Jefford Shorey is preaching a different gospel, and she is attacking the Orthodox Christian faith. Those of people who are following and supporting her, you need to abandon her. You need to call her to repentance and discipline her and throw her out on her butt. She is a wolf. She is a satanic agent dressed up in bishop's drag. And she needs to be called to account for her false gospel, her false doctrine, her false teaching. And when we get back from this break, we're going to show you why from Scripture, why women are forbidden by God's word from having a position of authority in the church. This woman is an agent of the devil, and the fact that she even exists as the, quote, head of the Episcopal Church is an absolute affront to God and his word and his stench in his nostrils. We'll, pro we'll show that when we get back from our second break. If you'd like to email me, you can. Talk back at fightingforthefaith.com. Talk back at fightingforthefaith.com. We'll be right back. Think Christianity, we need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Orthodox Christianity clearly teaches God's law, which condemns our sinful nature, and clearly proclaims the gospel of Christ's death and resurrection on our behalf to pay for our sinfulness. These truths of Holy Scripture are timeless and objective. However, a creeping fog known as the Emergent Church threatens to unravel these clear teachings by redefining the vocabulary and core beliefs of the Christian faith in terms of subjective personal feelings and experiences. That is why Pirate Christian Radio is proud to offer The Emergent Church, Undefining Christianity, a book by Bob DeWay that is widely regarded as the best book available on the Emergent Heresy. The book is $12.95 plus $4 shipping and handling, and all proceeds directly support the Christ-centered ministry of Pirate Christian Radio. Log on today to piratechristianradio.com and order your copy of The Emergent Church, Undefining Christianity. All right, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith, straight ahead. 
you know, for time's sake today, I'm not going to be able to get to this Massachusetts Bible Society two days in a row. So stay tuned. Tomorrow we'll go through that. Unbelievable. That, wow. <laughs> All right. Um, okay, we're going to spend a little bit of time here before we get into my lecture on you know, the third part of my lecture on how to properly interpret God's Word. We're going to do a little bit of biblical work, and some of you have asked for this. Uh, I've made the claim and uh, constantly harp on it that the Bible forbids women from holding the position of pastor in the church. They are not to have authority over men. Now, I'm going to lay out the biblical case. It's pretty simple, actually, as far as biblical cases go. That being said, I want to make something very clear. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, makes it clear that both men and women are, are made in the image of God. The image of God is not limited to only men, and I am not a, I am not a woman hater. Okay? What I do hate is false doctrine and women who, uh, who try to twist God's word. In fact, over and over and over again, we see that when you let a woman into the pulpit or have a position of authority in the church, uh, that what comes along with her is absolute false doctrine and a desire to somehow open up the pulpit to practicing homosexuals. It just seems to be as night follows day, so that's the case. Okay, but I want to make it clear. God's word in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, makes it clear that both men and women are created in the image of God. This has nothing to do with whether or not men and women are equal in God's sight. It has everything to do with the fact that men and women have different roles given to them, different vocations given to them by God. And this is the way God has ordered things. For instance, I do not have the ability to bear children. Yeah, that's right. Me personally, I have never carried a human fetus inside of my body. My wife has. And you know what? That's the way God made it. God did not make me the mother of my children. I am the father of my children. Like it or not, there are particular roles and responsibilities that go along with the different genders that God has created. Women have particular functions. Men have particular functions. And we operate best when we're in harmony, if you would, with how God has made us and are doing the things that God has made us to do. Okay? That being said... The passage in question, the most the clearest one we want to look at, is first Timothy chapter two, verses eleven through fourteen. Okay? This is the one that's the clearest. Okay. Paul writes, he says, Let a woman learn in silence with all submissiveness. I permit no woman to teach or to have authority over men. She is to keep silent. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Now notice, Paul doesn't say, you know, this is just my personal opinion. This is something connected to 
the culture. You know, we all know in our culture nowadays, it, it just wouldn't work if a woman was teaching. And so, therefore, until, you know, humanity comes to their senses and has a more enlightened opinion, you know, this is the way it needs to be. That's not what he says. What does he connect it to? He connects it to creation itself and the order of creation and the fall of man. She's to keep silent, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. The other thing we need to keep in mind is that 2 Timothy chapter 2 does not record for us merely some personal opinions or foibles or ideas of the Apostle Paul. No. Second Timothy chapter 2 was written down and inspired by God, the Holy Spirit, third person of the Holy Trinity. These are his words. They are not just Paul's alone. These are the words that Paul wrote under the inspiration and guidance of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit's words are binding and authoritative. So here's the deal. You have a problem with this idea of women not being allowed to teach. Keep this in mind also. I've said it before. I'll say it again. How many women apostles were there? None. Not one. Jesus' inner circle was made up only of men. Who was Jesus Christ? He was God in human flesh. If God wanted to, because God has the prerogative and authority to make such decisions, he could have easily decided that he wanted women in that inner circle. Yet there were none. Not because God was afraid of the opinions of men. You ever notice that about Jesus? He really wasn't afraid of other people's opinions. He had no problem speaking his mind, and he had no problem speaking authoritatively whatsoever. Never once do you see in, in scriptures Jesus capitulating or kind of shaving off some of the rough edges of his message or the things that he's doing because it might upset or offend somebody. Think of all the times that Jesus healed somebody on the Sabbath and the Pharisees went berserk. You mean, Jesus could have been a lot more sensitive, don't you think? I mean, doesn't didn't he understand that that would really send them into the stratosphere and, and cause them to get all upset? How come he didn't care about them enough to, to, not, to, to save his miracles until after the Sabbath? Jesus Christ, God in human flesh, second person of the Holy Trinity, had no problem doing things that would upset people's apple carts. In fact, he overturned quite a few money changers' tables, if you know what I mean. So the fact that God in human flesh did not pick for any of the positions of authority and leadership within the church, a single woman speaks volumes. Add that to the fact 
that here we have under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit a clear passage of Scripture that's not tied to culture, but is tied to the very creation itself. What does that mean? You have a problem with women not being able to have a position of authority in the church? Take it up with God. And when you win that argument, come talk to me. And until such a time as God, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, causes scriptures to be written that rescinds the current prohibition of women having a position of authority in the church, this thing stands. By the way, there's another couple passages of scripture to take into consideration. I want you to watch this. First uh, Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Let me pull this up really quick. First Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of an overseer, that would be a pastor, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife. Notice, here in 1 Timothy chapter 3, it is absolutely assumed that if somebody wants to be a, pa- a pastor in a church, that person is to be a man the husband of one wife. It doesn't say the wife of uh, the the spouse of one spouse. It literally assumes male. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. You think those pronouns are an accident? God the Holy Spirit does not stutter. God the Holy Spirit didn't make an accident in these passages when he caused Paul to be inspired to write these words where the very qualifications of a pastor are laid out and it applies only to he's, not hers, he's. Man, that's bad English. By the way, This isn't the only place that this type of a list appears. We find this also in Titus chapter 1, specifically 5 through 9. We read, This is why I, Paul, left you, Titus, in Crete, so that you might put what remained in order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife... And his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of the good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Notice the pronouns again. He, 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 
he, not her, not them, he. Husband of one wife. When you take all of this into consideration, Jesus' own inner circle, only made up of men. 2 Timothy chapter 2, forbidding women, on the basis of creation itself. 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, all making it clear that the qualifications to be a pastor for somebody who has authority in the church is that it's a he. Then it all makes sense as to why, from all of history, the only people who have ever held positions of authority in the church have been men. And I don't care that we live in the 21st century. What does that have to do with truth? Did you know that 2 plus 2 not only equals 4 today, but it equaled 4 100 years ago. It equaled 4 1,000 years ago. It equaled 4 15,000 years ago. 2 plus 2 has always equaled 4. Truth is true, and it's binding and true for all generations of human beings from Adam and Eve until the last person who who draws their last breath. The scripture is clear. It is men who are to hold positions of authority in the church, and this is God's ordained way of doing it. You don't like it? Who cares? God doesn't care if you like it or not. He doesn't care if I like something or not. His word is true whether you like it or not. Liking it is not the way things go. God does not take opinion polls and sit there and say, okay, you know, right, it's the 21st century humanity, and, you know, we're going to take an opinion poll, and we're going to decide this now based upon opinion. And if whatever 51% of you say it is, well, that's the way it's going to go. God's word is true regardless of the day and age and regardless of whether or not the culture is offended by it. Do you know the preaching of the cross is a stumbling block and an offense? Does that mean that we should put it away because people are offended by it? Well, no, absolutely not. Man's capricious opinions and attitudes have no bearing on the truth. Truth is true no matter when it is that people live. You don't like it. Go find another religion. You See, the problem is, is not that people don't want to go to heaven, as Paul Washer says. The problem is, is that people don't want God to be there when they get there. This is the way God has made it. And in this, I know I'm stepping on people's toes. And I don't care. I have to tell you the truth. My conscience is bound to the word of God. Unless you can show me from the clear teachings of Scripture that women are to have positions of authority in the church, because I've just laid out the biblical case that shows that they cannot, then God's word stands. This is not based upon my opinion, and your opinion shouldn't be based upon it either. Anyway, so there you have it. Had to share that. So what does that mean regarding Catherine Jefford Shorey? Oh, she most certainly, most absolutely certainly, is in rebellion to God's word. The Episcopal Church is in rebellion to God's word for even having her there. And now their rebellion is, their fruit is ripe and ready for the picking. And what is the fruit that they've produced? 
Catherine Jefford Shorey is not some loving woman who's out there proclaiming Christ and him crucified for our sins. No, she is now openly attacking the Orthodox Christian faith and the biblical gospel and calling it a heresy. What's the term we use? That would be the the pot calling the kettle black, so to speak. In reality, it is she who is the heretic. She is the one who has abandoned Christ in his word. She is the one who is in rebellion to God in his word. She is not a representative of Jesus Christ. She is truly a Jezebel-like agent of the devil. And I know these are strong words, but these words are true. You don't believe me? Then I challenge you to show me where I'm wrong and compare what I am saying to God's word. Because I've just compared what she said to God's word. Again, you don't agree with me? You don't believe me? Compare what I have said to the word of God. Our prayers go out to the Episcopal Church. We pray that God would grant the people in the Episcopal Church repentance. Repentance from their heresy. Repentance from the rebellion against God's word. Repentance from the rebellion against Christ and the true biblical gospel. That God would grant them repentance and the action and the resolve to throw that woman out on her butt and to replace her with men who will preach the sound biblical gospel, and get back to proclaiming repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name to all nations. Because what they're doing, they are literally, and I mean literally, sending themselves and their listeners to hell. All right, we are uh, at the... Sorry about that. I had to focus here for a second. We are at the uh, final end of segment of our edition of Fighting for the Faith today. And what we're going to do today and tomorrow is I'm going to play parts three and four of the lecture that I gave while I was teaching at Faith Lutheran Church on um, how to interpret the Bible, how to interpret properly interpret God's Word. Now, what this, what this means is, is that um, I, I promised I would do this. I'm going to post the uh, notes and the PowerPoint presentation to all of this out on the internet. I'll, I'll tweet it out. I'll put it on Facebook and I'm going to put it on the website so that you can see these notes in the PowerPoint presentation and follow along. Um, why? Because it's absolutely critical because it's, it's just so clear based upon uh, what's happening in the church today. And from the preaching that we're hearing over and over and over again in the church, that people just do not know how to rightly handle God's word. they, they allegorize it. They do not understand the historical grammatical method and are the basic rules of it. This lecture, by the way, does not present um, uh, – how do I put it? A, a, a comprehensive uh, a, a comprehensive set of information on how to do this. This lays out the basics of all of this, but not – this is not a comprehensive view of it. So there's, there's more to it, and I would recommend some other resources – uh, but I won't do that now. We'll put this out there for you, to, you know, just so that you guys can get the basics of it. This is how to interpret uh, the Bible, really, kind of for laymen to help you guys, you know, work this all out. So, without any further ado, here's myself 
<laughs> Here's Chris Roseborough. We're not going to do the good, the bad, the ugly theme because I'm not going to review it. I'm just going to let this run. Uh, here's me uh, teaching on how to interpret the Bible. This is a third part of a, of a lecture series that I gave on the subject. Let's get going into our lesson, and I'm going to open with a word of prayer. Let's pray. Almighty and everlasting God, you would, you would have all to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. By your almighty power and unsearchable wisdom, break and hinder all the counsel of those who hate your word and who by corrupt teaching would destroy it. Enlighten them with the knowledge of your glory, that they may know the riches of your heavenly grace, and in peace and righteousness serve you, the only true God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. I always work from a particular set of premises, and I like to go over those with you so that if you're new, you understand where I'm coming from, and it's always good to review these things, not because so much of the head knowledge, but because this is stuff that we confess. First, sola scriptura, that the Bible is the inerrant word of God and the only authority of truth and doctrine regarding the true worship of God. We live in a country of freedom of religion. And generally that means you're free to believe whatever you want to believe. Um, When approaching Scripture, we learn that Scripture tells us that we don't get to approach God on our terms. Okay? So we, all of us, have religious ideas. And when those ideas come in conflict with God's Word... Your ideas give way. God's word is true. Okay? Sola Christus, we are saved through Christ's work alone. Sola Gratia, we are saved by grace alone. Sola Fide, through faith alone. And uh, Interactiva, which is a made-up word. That means you can ask me questions. Last week we had questions. Just raise your hand. I'll try to acknowledge you. And we're going to continue our uh, four-week lesson on how to properly read the Bible. Um, we've been doing an introductory series on rightly dividing the word of truth. Today we're going to talk about Christ-centered interpretation and then begin applying some of these rules that we learned. Rules is kind of a strong word. It's, this is, in fact, I began to think about this, this entire handout and talking about the grammar rules. It's all law. Rule number one, rule number two. These are rules by which we work. But actually the idea here is, is that when we're approaching Scripture, we're approaching it using a historical grammatical method, but the historical grammatical method doesn't end with history and grammar. It also has some theological implications and a framework from which we operate. And the way you work the theological in is once you use the history and the grammar, you go to key portions of Scripture that talk about how to properly handle God's Word, and then those set the theological framework for interpreting the whole book. Okay, So um, we talked, we ended off last week in the theological and rule number five. Rule number five says, To rightly understand and interpret Scripture, it is necessary to distinguish between the law and the gospel. Great sermon today. Great sermon today that properly used law and gospel. Okay? So properly distinguish between the law and the gospel elements in the text and then properly relate the former, that is the law, to the latter of the gospel. Does anyone else struggle whenever somebody says the latter or the former? You always say that to go, okay, the... the, the I always struggle with that. I don't know what the deal is. I can't quite get to it quickly, so I have to lay it out for myself. Okay, so justification by grace through faith in Christ is the ray that is the main subject of all true biblical and Christian theology. The interpreter must see to it that his interpretation of the text has Christ as its center, teaches him, and glorifies him as Savior and Lord. And I'm going to make this claim. If you're not properly distinguishing between law and gospel in your interpretation of Scripture, then you're not putting Christ to center. Literally, in order to have a Christ-centered interpretation, law and gospel properly distinguished must be done. It's the difference of putting the emphasis on you 
or the emphasis on Christ. That's what it really boils down to. So this next section, we're going to talk about Christ-centered interpretation, how it hinges on uh, correctly distinguishing between the law and the gospel. All right? I seem to have written that from, you know, just straight out of my mind. Here we go. All right. We're going to do a little textual work here. 1 Timothy. The epistle begins with these words. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace and mercy and peace from God our Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Now, we hinged, touched on this a little bit last week, and I'm going to just spend a little bit of time here. When you do textual work with somebody who has different doctrines than you do, the first inclination of the American mind is you're being judgmental. Why are you judging me? You're being negative. You're not being politically correct. You're being insensitive and unloving. Okay, Christian doctrine, the Scriptures tell us that when you take the time to show somebody what the text actually says, especially if they're following a doctrine that is in disagreement with the text, that that is a loving thing to do. Okay, and you'll notice here, there's our Greek word. I put that in there for everyone's benefit, uh, paraangelo, which the, the, the word charge Remain at Ephesus that you may charge, para angelo. It, it literally means uh, to make an announcement about something that must be done, to give orders or a command or instruct. It's like a military term. Okay? So, Paul is telling Timothy here, to remain at Ephesus that you may command, charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. From the beginning of the church, there have been strange doctrines floating around. And the charge of the, of the apostles and the apostolic teaching is to not only proclaim the truth, thesis, but to also do antithesis, that is, to condemn error. We see this in our own confessions. When was the last time you all read the Augsburg Confession? Okay, no one jump at me here. <laughs> huh? Trinity Sunday, that was the Athanasian Creed. The Augsburg Confession. You all own a copy of the Book of Concord? Okay, Augsburg Confession. It's right after the three ecumenical creeds. He launched into the Augsburg Confession, one of the earliest confessions of the Lutheran faith. And I would say it's a Christian confession, not a Lutheran confession. I like to make that distinction just to tweak people. But in the Augsburg Confession, as you go through the different articles, especially, you know, it begins right in the article of the doctrine of God and the Trinity. You know, we believe that you know, in the doctrine of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. There are not three gods, there's one God. And we reject the teachings of. And they name the heresies. You see that throughout the Augsburg Confession. What we proclaim and confess as true and what we reject. Okay? Again, we sensitive Americans, we don't get, we're not comfortable with the, the rejection part. Get over it. Okay? Fight the battle. Get in there. Okay? So here we got Paul telling Timothy, okay, to charge certain persons, command them not to teach any different doctrine, or to devote themselves to myths, endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than stewardship from God that is by faith. Okay, next verse. Whoa, got a little clicky, sorry. That's right, you live by technology, you die by technology. All right, 
Next verse. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience. So in commanding certain people not to teach any different doctrine, the aim of that is love. Okay? The issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. We know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. I will argue here that this text is making a case for the lawful use of the law and by implication is saying that there is an unlawful use of the law. Okay, so we need to discuss we need to look into this. What does it mean to use the law unlawfully? In other words, you get a ticket for unlawfully using the law. How would you like to do that to a police officer? I'm sorry, officer, but um, you didn't do that lawfully. Okay? So we're going to look at what it means to lawfully use the law. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for uh, for the just, but for the lawless and the disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and the profane, and for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, those who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Now, this is important. Just doing a little grammar here. Sound doctrine also includes a proper understanding of the law. So, let me give you an example that I don't have to show you a picture of, but recently, back in Indianapolis, okay, home of the Indianapolis 500, okay, cornfields and motor cars. This is a great combination. But there was a church out there that did a billboard campaign all over Indianapolis basically saying that Jesus affirms homosexuality. Okay? Their gospel message to homosexuals is, is that what you're doing isn't a sin. Okay? And that Jesus loves you as you are. Okay? Now, knowing what we've just seen here, is this in accord with sound doctrine? No. Okay? No. So we have to do the real nasty work and say, I'm sorry, excuse me, that's not what Scripture says. Scripture says this. Okay? All right. So whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the glorious gospel of the, of the blessed God which I have been entrusted. So we're going to look at what it means to do the law lawfully. Okay? Romans 3.19. Do a little cross-referencing here. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. So when we do the law lawfully, according to Scripture, we know a few things now about the law. Okay, It's to silence every mouth, including my own, including yours, hold us accountable to God. And we know this also, the law cannot save you. Now, this is something that Lutherans are really strong about. We know this, okay? But we're going to engage the world around us and our evangelical friends, then we need to be able to communicate this to them from Scripture. 
Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Through the law, we become conscious of sin. What then is the purpose of the law according to what we've read so far? Anyone want to take a stab at it? To show you that you're a sinner. That's the purpose of the law. Show you that you're a sinner. Now, in the Reformation, they talked about the three uses of the law. Does everyone remember this? Three uses? Okay. First use is to make it so that you don't beat up on your neighbor. Call it the curb, the rule. Drives us to our knees, shows us our sin. And then the third use, which is a lot of debate about, and there should be, is it shows us holy living. Okay? Shows us what we, how we ought to behave in a sanctified life. All right, Galatians 2. Uh, I think we read this this morning. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So also have believed in uh, Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by the works of the law no one will be justified. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if justification were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. So in using the law lawfully... You have to use it in such a way that you convict people of their sins, hold them accountable, expose their evil. But using it unlawfully would mean that you're using the law in such a way as to make a person believe, think, or speculate that they are somehow made pleasing to God by their own efforts, their law-keeping and good works. That is an unlawful use of the law. Okay? If the text is true... If what Scripture says is true, we are not made righteous before God by being good people. Now, my grandmother-in-law, her general feeling about civic righteousness is that anybody who isn't in prison is a good person. That's her definition. Anybody who isn't in prison is a good person. They're in prison, they're a bad person. And that when you die and you go before the Lord on Judgment Day, He's generally going to look at whether or not You've been in prison. Are you a good person? Okay? And this is, I think, the natural religion that we all sort of have. We compare ourselves to our neighbors. I'm a good person. I'm a decent person. My neighbors are good good fellows. You know, we like to get together on the weekends and barbecue. Of course they're going to go to heaven. No. Now let's use the law lawfully. We open up the law. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart. Well, whoa. Okay, I don't know what that means. I don't think I've ever done that. Love your neighbor as yourself. Well, kind of mess up on that charge too, like every day. So, yeah, no other gods. Well, does a BMW count? My FJ Cruiser, you know, things of that nature. Yeah, right. So when we use the law lawfully, it makes us all uncomfortable. All right. Um, so I, there's a, there's an example that I like to use. I've used this in the past, and if you've seen this on my website, I apologize. How is the interpreter to, interpreter to portray God's law? Okay, and um, this is um, this is a little dog. I've named him Gospel. Okay, and Gospel, he's a friendly little dog. He's manageable, and whenever you mess up, he's nipping at your heels. Nip, 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 nip. You're doing the wrong thing. Okay, so. Are you portraying God's law as manageable? Okay? This is, um, if you just love God with all of your heart and love your neighbor as yourself, then God will bless your life. 
Your relationships will be healthy. You'll be financially well off. Your children will be obedient. (laughs) And you will live a long and stress-free life. Okay? Is this preaching the law lawfully? Okay, now, I want to say this. If you read the law, you're going to find that the law has all kinds of wonderful promises associated with it. But there's this nasty little word in there. And the word is if. If. If you obey my commands, you will live long and prosper. Okay? And if you don't, you're under a curse. Okay? So what happens is, is when you make the law manageable... You basically make it in such a way that you've got this tiny little dog who nips at you and kind of encourages you to do the right thing and makes it so that you're not doing the wrong thing, okay? So with these sermons that come along these ways, they, they all kind of focus in as if you just love God with all of your heart. I, you know, I was just in the Bay Area. I was listening to KFAX in San Francisco Bay just to hear what was on popular Christian radio, and I... I am not kidding. This is the sentence that I heard the pastor preach on the radio. If you just love God with all your heart, you know, your life will be better. And so then the sermons go like this. Let me give you three practical things that you can do today that will help you love God with all of your heart. Okay, and they generally fall into these categories. Spend time in His Word daily. Pray without ceasing. And uh, fellowship with other believers. It's just three practical ideas. Now, do we have any problem with uh, spending time with God's Word daily? No. In fact, I encourage you to do it. Praying without ceasing. Well, I'm not so good on the not ceasing part, but praying. Are we opposed to praying? By all means, no. In fact, I definitely encourage you to do so. Fellowshipping with other believers, I absolutely recommend it. Especially at Oktoberfest when we have the keg going. Okay. But the idea here is is that so much of evangelical preaching and what you're going to hear outside of these walls, is they've made the law manageable. You can pull it off. You can experience the blessings promised in the law. And all you got to do is these practical steps, apply these things to your life, conquer this manageable thing, and you will be blessed. I've spent many a year in congregations that preach like this. And what they'll do is, on a regular basis, it's part of their liturgy, they will parade people up onto the stage who will give their testimonies that they're pulling it off. Okay? I'm not making that up. And so what happens is, it does, it does a few things. It drives people out of those churches because they despair, because they realize they're never going to be one of the people who gets up on the stage and they're pulling it off. Or it creates a whole group of people who think, wow, if I just try harder and give it a good college try, then I could be one of those people who can get up on stage and tell you how victorious I've been. Yes. Right. Yes. In a situation like that, the question had to do, if you didn't hear it, is that he was reading some liberal theologians and clergy on the homosexual issue. And their basic contention is, is that God's Word has different messages for different times. Okay, The historical grammatical method, which we're looking at here, absolutely patently rejects that. And the reason why it does is because if you really believe that God's Word has different messages for different times, then there's no way to know what the Bible means ever. Okay, that What you've done is you've put a subjective idea in there where you can tweak God's Word to mean anything you want it to mean, and you can say, well, this is what it means now. How many of you guys have ever heard any, you know, any of these preachers talk about the fact that God's doing a new thing? 
Okay, it's like the common theme. It's like, and it, ju- it justifies anything. Well, God's doing a new thing. You need to be where God is doing his new thing. Well, God's new thing is, is that he's forgiven sinners by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. That's the new thing. Okay? And it might not seem so new because it's a few thousand years old, but that's the new thing and nothing else gets changed. Okay, but as soon as you take the Bible and turn it into something that can be subjectively interpreted for different times to mean different things, you've lost the whole meaning. You need to interpret it in light of the historical grammatical method, you know, the language that it was written in at the time that it was written in. And we'll get into a little bit of this. Okay, let me move on to the next subject. Okay, we're, we're going to look at, we looked at God's law being manageable. Let me give you an ex- a better idea of what God's law is really like. Okay. Oh, I should finish this up, huh? Yeah, this was the summary slide. Let me run through this. So God's law then becomes helpful, manageable, um, achievable, and doable. Okay? It, literally, this is how, the, how this all works. All right? So the purpose of reading God's word and preaching is to help you discover the actions and behaviors that please God so that you will then do them. Then God will be pleased with you and bless your earthly life as well as on the day of judgment say to you, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Okay, this was a steady diet of preaching that I received for many, many, many years. Okay, um, So this way of interpreting Scripture is man-centered. This is all focusing in on you. I'm going to do these things. I'm going to please God by my lifestyle. I'm going to discover what God wants me to do. Then I'm going to do it. And God's going to pat me on the back and say, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Okay? Now, the other way of looking at God's law is like this. Okay? <laughs> God's law is utterly unmanageable and untamable. In fact, it's a burden that we cannot bear. It is vicious, demanding, unrelenting, unrelenting, threatening, thundering, and terrifying. Remember our Old Testament reading from this morning? You are the man. You are the man. I have sinned. Literally, it's like that. So Deuteronomy 11.26. See, I am setting before you today a blessing and a curse. This is Yahweh speaking. The blessing, if you obey the commandments of the Lord, if, if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today, and the curse, if you do not obey the commandments of the Lord your God. Now, confession time. I do not Obey the commandments of the Lord. I have earned and deserve the curses of the law. Every single one of them. Okay? When you do the law lawfully, it levels all of us. If you're honest with the law, you're going to come to this conclusion. So this leaves all of us in a very, very bad spot. Without outside intervention, we have no hope on the Day of Judgment because God's law has already knocked us to the ground and is snarling a very terrifying word in our face, guilty. No way out of it. Okay? Let's see if the text bears this out. Romans 3. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that... All, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, no one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God. By the way, this whole idea of a seeker-sensitive service is completely thrown out the window just with those words. 
No one seeks God. There's no such thing as a seeker the way that these church growth guys talk about him. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Y'all feeling good now? You're not supposed to. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their path are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. So is it the little yippy dog? Or is it this one? Okay. Let's take a look at the two in comparison. We see this in a great uh, parable that Jesus told. And it doesn't even exactly read like a parable. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Verse 9 of Luke chapter 18 ought to make all of us take pause. If you think that you are saved by your righteous keeping of the law and you think that you're living the victorious Christian life and that people should look to you as an example, this verse should make you stop dead in your tracks. He told this parable to some who trusted in themselves. Ultimately, if you do the law unlawfully, it puts it on man, not Christ. Okay? Treated others with contempt. Two men went into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. Tax collectors, by the way, in this historical context, had very low status. They were sellouts. If you were a Jew and you were a tax collector, you may as well have been dead. You had sold out. You had given up God and your people and aligned yourself with pagan Romans. And they made themselves wealthy in the process, too, so they were considered thieves. Lowest of the low. A tax collector is an obvious sinner. Someone who isn't even trying to be sanctified. The Pharisee standing by himself, this would be like your synagogue leader, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. He's going to get like carpal tunnel syndrome, patting himself on on the back. I'm not like extortioners, the unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. The hearers of this parable are getting this. This is really a sharp contrast. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Wow, this is some righteous dude, right? His view of the law is gospel, little dog. It's manageable. It's doable. It's achievable. And he's doing it, he's achieving it, and he's righteous. He's probably got good hair and nice teeth, too. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. The law had done its work. This guy's terrified. He's so terrified, he is even afraid to approach the presence of God in the temple. He's standing far off, won't even lift his eyes up. And he beat his breast. Some commentator says that's basically an effeminate action. And he's, here's his prayer. In fact, I would argue this is the biblical sinner's prayer. You ever get the, the little track, the four spiritual laws, and at the end of it, you're supposed to pray this, the sinner's prayer? This is the original, and nothing beats this one. But only somebody who's had the law attack them 
and knock them down and they're terrified and have nowhere else to go or as pastor preached this morning, has died. Only somebody who who's been there can pray this sinner's prayer. Here it is. In all of its profundity. God, be merciful to me, sinner. If your prayer is that of the Pharisee, I thank you, God, that I'm not like everybody else, that I'm not in prison, I'm a good person, that you've blessed me with a BMW, good teeth, straight hair, a healthy body. Then we've got some trouble. You, you, you really need to hear what God's law has to say. But on the other hand, you know you're a sinner and the law has terrified you and your only prayer that you literally have is God have mercy on me, a sinner, much like the prayer of the prodigal son. I'm not worthy to be called your son. Then the law has done its work on you lawfully. There's an unlawful use, a lawful use. The end result of the lawful use is this prayer, God have mercy. I tell you that this man the tax collector went down to his house justified rather than the other. And you can hear the collective gasp in the audience as Jesus was telling this parable. What? <gasps> you got to be kidding me. This goes against everything we've ever been taught or experienced. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And the one who humbles himself be exalted. So God's law, done lawfully, kills us. It exposes our utter, utter sinfulness. It destroys self-righteous pride. It humbles us. It holds us accountable to God. It shows us what we should be doing but are not. It shows us what we should be thinking but don't. It is not manageable. It terrifies us. It leaves us no hope within ourselves and our own good works. None whatsoever. When that guy lets go of that leash and that dog comes after you, you are not getting away. And it's going to be painful. I guarantee you it will be a mess. That's the law done lawfully. So interpreting the law lawfully is the only way to truly have a Christ-centered interpretation of Scripture. Because when you do the law lawfully, Christ then becomes our great God and Savior instead of our example, our moral coach, our training buddy, or our therapist. You see the difference? In the other way, it's the what would Jesus do? I'm going to follow, I'm a red-letter Christian. I'm going to do the things that Jesus does, and I'm going to experience the kingdom of God here on earth. And Jesus is my training buddy. So Jesus and I get together every morning, and we go through certain passages of Scripture, and Jesus says, hey, Chris, you know what? You're looking a little flabby. Why don't you just drop and give me 20? Okay, Jesus. See what I'm saying? Trite way of looking at it, but makes the point. So Jesus Christ is the other part of this, is the center of all Scripture. Let's see if we can apply some of our stuff here. So we got Christ-centered interpretation by doing law and gospel properly. And then as 
Luther says Jesus is in every passage. And believe me, he is. John 5.37 says this, And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard from, and his form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe in the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet, you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Now, I quoted this passage, and it has a bigger context. Let's see if we can do a little work on this. Okay? You have your pew Bibles, you can take a look. John chapter 5. question is, in context, who is Jesus addressing here? See if somebody can figure this out. Who is Jesus addressing? John chapter 5, 37 through 40. Who's his audience? He's talking to Jews. Okay, in the, in, Right before Jesus launches into this monologue, okay, Jesus says to them in verse 17, My father is working into now, and I am working. That is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. You ever have a, you need a verse that you can go to really quick to prove the deity of Christ? Jesus never claimed to be God, says the liberal theologian. Hogwash. He called God his father, making himself equal with God, and they got it. Okay? Verse 19, so Jesus said to them, them being the Jews. Okay? So here we have Jesus addressing Jews. Okay? Do a little grammar work here. According to the passage here on, up above, where were these Jews or people looking for eternal life? According to the passage, where were they looking? The law? What's the passage say? Scriptures. Graphes. Okay. So the Jews are looking in the Scriptures in order to have eternal life. Okay. A little history here. At this time, have any of the New Testament documents been penned? No. So we're talking about the Old Testament. Now, this is an odd claim. Jesus is saying, you search the Scriptures, meaning at this point, the Old Testament, because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. I thought the Old Testament was about the angry God, and the New Testament is about the loving Jesus. Isn't that what we all think? Huh? You know better. But, I mean, haven't you had your friends talk to you like this? Oh, that God in the Old Testament, he's mean. He's angry. He kills people with sulfur and fire. And then we get over here, and, and Jesus is love. Right? Almost like there's two different gods. But Jesus is making an odd claim here. The Old Testament scriptures, they bear witness about me. Okay? So then the question, a little bit of history, because it's not exactly in the text, by what means were these people then trying to attain eternal life in looking at the Old Testament documents? Answer, huh? They were trying to accomplish the law, and they thought they were pulling it off. Okay. So when we look at this passage, we begin to see something here. So what were they then missing in their Scripture searching? 
they're searching the scriptures diligently because they think that by them they have eternal life. What were they missing? Huh? The purpose, well, the, the who, who's it all about? Messiah, Christ. Okay? So now we've got an odd thing. Jesus, walking on earth, before the New Testament is written, says about the Old Testament documents that you search them diligently because you want eternal life, yet they are the very documents that testify about me. Really? Man, I better read my Old Testament a little bit more, right? But they do. They testify about him. So, all of the scriptures are really about Christ. And we also see this borne out in the wonderful story about the road to Emmaus. You know, after Jesus is risen from the dead. Okay, let me read this for you. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus. This is Easter Sunday, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about these things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing them. We don't know how it worked. It could have been a miracle. It could have been like the Jedi mind trick. You do not know who I am. We don't know who you are. Okay? doesn't say. So he comes and he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them said, Then one of them named Cleopas answered, Are you only a visitor in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Well, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed, in word before God and all the people. And how, oh, I hate it when I do that. And chow. You know what this is? Let me explain this real quick. I have a computerized Bible, and it has it has little notes, and they're lettered A, B, C, and D. And I'll, I'll copy it and put it in here, and I get some bizarre words if the, if the little markers come across. I have to go through it, because chow technically is not misspelled. Okay, it's, You'll notice that chow is correctly spelled. Okay. It's just I missed it. Okay, And how our chief priests and rulers delivered up to be condemned to death and crucified him. Okay? We continue with the story. All right. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes. And besides all of this, it is now the third day since these things happened. And moreover, some women of our company amazed us. Careful. The women, this witnesses is not something that goes over very big. So they're still scratching their heads. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had, eat, they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. And some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but found, but him they did not see. And he said to them, Oh, foolish ones, how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning Himself. So, let me continue the story because I just love this story. All right. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he was going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, "Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is not uh, is far is now far spent." So he went in to stay with them, and when he was at table with them, he took bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them, and then their eyes were opened. The Jedi mind trick wore off. Okay? And they recognized him. And then he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, 
Did not our hearts burn within us while He was talking to us on the road and while He opened up to us the Scriptures? Duh! Wow! And what did Jesus show them? Starting with Moses and the prophets, all the things concerning Him. So when you're interpreting Scripture, law and gospel done properly, and when you're doing that, You're looking for Christ, and it puts Him as the center. And believe me, Jesus is in every passage, and He's not hard to dig out. Okay, And that's what makes our reading of Scripture different in that sense, because we're not looking on ways on how which we can please God by our good keeping of the law, because we do the law lawfully. All right, there you have it, uh, part three of my lecture on how to correctly interpret God's Word. Uh, tomorrow we'll play part four of the lecture, and like I said, I'm going to make all of the uh, the PowerPoint uh, slides uh, and the handout available on the Internet as a download so that you can uh, go back and refer back to them. Um, sadly, we're at the end of another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Yeah, that happens. And uh, need to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. In order for us to continue bringing to you resources and lectures like this, Uh, to do the commentary that we do, to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God, and to help you to grow in your understanding of God's Word, and to help you to think biblically and critically. Uh, We need your financial support in order to continue doing this. You can support us a couple of ways. First is by visiting fightingforthefaith.com. That's the home of our website and uh, the Fighting for the Faith archives. And uh, click on one of the friendly yellow donate buttons there, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 460. Three eight. Well, there you have it. Interesting day today. Like I said, you know, I was thinking heresy season was over. Apparently, it's running late this year. Boy, that oh, man! I tell you that Catherine Jefford Shorey lady, not good. You know, uh, someone that already has uh, left me a comment on Facebook saying that she sounds a lot like uh, Wormtongue from the Lord of the Rings, or. Um, you know, the, really, the White Witch from uh, the Chronicles of, of Narnia. That is absolutely a uh, a fitting uh, analogy in both cases. That's absolutely true. So anyway, if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this program or any of our other programs, you can at TalkBackAtFightingForTheFaith.com. That's TalkBackAtFightingForTheFaith.com. Or ask to be my friend on Facebook or follow me on Twitter. My name there is Pirate Christian. Until tomorrow, may the Lord richly bless you and his mercy and grace won for you by Christ on his cross. Shed blood for your sins. Amen. Amen.